Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you're all fed and watered, we can proceed with uh, some questions if you feel inclined. John, this had better be good. You do I will come very shortly. Next question. Well, um, the pharaoh, pretty, pretty teetery actually. Um, the the pharaohs are just a territory of Denmark, and uh, Denmark does the reserve powers of defence, um, macroeconomic policy, although some of that's shared as well, and foreign policy. Um, so it's there's not a huge relationship. And actually, one of the things that's quite stunning about the pharaohs, I was there, was it last year? There's a, currently there's a Republican majority and they want independence again. But what they think they need to do, they want a seat in the World Trade Organization. They want the pharaohs to be there in their own right, 40,000 people. Um, what they're doing to get there is that they are determined to become economically independent first. So they're sending the grant from Copenhagen back. I know. I said, can I just make sure I didn't misunderstand you there? <laughs> and had to go through it two or three times, but that's the plan. So they're weaning themselves off subsidy. And UDI means, I mentioned it before, is unilateral declaration of independence. So that's when you just say it. Like this is me unilaterally declaring that I've told you this twice now, John. Right? Okay, you're fine. Well, you know, having edited the, this this book, and by the way, thank you for buying. <laughs> you know, there's a great. Uh, I'm, it's probably a saying in every one of the countries, but I see it most often in Norway. Ask for forgiveness, not permission. Um, so, thank you for um, moving some of those books. But um, uh, it's really hard to know, having edited it all. There's real. You know, there's there's real difference. There's benefits to either solution, and a lot of it depends on getting closer to what Scotland's interests are. I mean, like Finland, we are in bed with an elephant. Like like Finland, we have a, a land border with a larger country. Um, we we might think, therefore, that actually, you know, we we may be in a more analogous position to those countries that trade with with neighbours very strongly and across borders. We've also been a member for, since 1973. These other countries were all kind of, you know, they decided never to join. But we've been there. It's one of the reasons that uh, the woman whose name I keep forgetting, who uh, is the EU representative, Rona Lightfoot, I think, uh, in Britain, um, she had said during the, the last independence referendum, she was the one that said Scotland would have to go to the back of the queue. I mean, there is no queue. That's not the way it works. But she has now changed her tune, Begora. She's the one who's saying, actually, Scotland would be pretty well straight in because we already comply with all the regulations because we've been members for 40 years. So 
you know, there are those things that are different. I have a particular feeling that Scotland needs to get a grip of its natural assets. And that comes to fishing and farming. Now, I don't have a great confidence that my interest in this is shared necessarily by the Scottish Government. Um, I would think that we need to change the whole subsidy regime for this and a lot of the way that, that we conduct our business in fishing and farming. So that's one reason that I would, I would have some interest in the North Atlantic solution. And you've got to say that those, those North Atlantic little sub-states um, and states like Iceland are hypnotically impressive. I'm not hearing you properly without the mic. With regard to Scotland being in the European Union. Yeah, but the thing is, and the, you know, I, I understand that people think that you can renegotiate some of these things. You're not going to renegotiate the common agricultural policy, the common fisheries policy very easily, because both of them rest upon ideas about, um, about freedom of trade, freedom of movement, um, freedom of, of investment around. Um, and that's part of the underpinning of the difficulty with the fisheries agreement. So there's no question that if there, an independent Scotland was uh, going for membership of the EU, and you know it's not a minor point that 62% of Scots think they voted for that, albeit in a referendum that in a classic British way is pretty binary. Um, if we were going into that, there's no question a Scottish government would argue a better deal for Scottish fishing than the British government ever did. They sold fishermen out, totally sold them out. And, you know, we know, we can see what they're doing again. We're no dummies. Michael Gove, you know, trips off to Denmark, thinks nobody will notice, and starts talking about um, trading, um, you know, a cash for access, basically. And access to what, I wonder? Yeah, probably their traditional fishing grounds, most of which are in Scottish waters. So, you know... There's, so there's difficulties, but this is the point. I don't know definitely which of those options is best, but just from starting off and looking around you, you can see that there's two pretty strong alternatives. Um, those who are favourable to the EEA say that the EEA is very unlikely to change over the next wee while, although, of course, if the UK jumps into the middle of it, it'll be smashed to pieces, whereas the EU faces some tough times. Um, there's all these arguments, and that's the politician needs to be able to sort of sift those around. But actually, the public need to get involved. I don't know if there are fishermen or farm, farming people in here, but you know, you, you need to start thinking yourselves and help the debate. I'm not a blooming fisherman. I don't know. I'm only picking up what I can from people around me. Aye. Yep. In all these discussions, we've been talking about about economics, jobs, agreements with each other. Where do you think the arts are going to go in this? Because if I, I, my opinion is if we don't have the arts, we all might as well chuck it. Well, yes, actually. And, and funny you should mention that because um, in addition to everything else, I've, been, uh, I've set up a Nordic landscape exhibition which has been touring around Scotland. And one of the things that strikes me really powerfully is when you look at a lot of the brilliant painters from all these nations, but again, particularly Norway, uh, you notice something really significant. Um, it is that all the landscape art they have has got people in it. It breaks my heart. The idea of Scottish, uh, the Scottish 
kind of idyll of what is thought to be most strongly beautiful and iconic about the Scottish Highlands is the monarch of the Glen, painted by Edwin Landseer from London, about glens that had just been cleared of every human being. And we still identify that. It's in the Blinken National Gallery. I was there last week. So I think uh, this might not be your... This is a point I want to make, which is that when you begin to look at them, you see some other things. Their museums are full of their own stuff because they didn't have empires. They haven't got stolen goods on display. Um, And that really makes a big difference. I went to a museum in Tromso, which is in the Arctic Circle, and uh, the main exhibit in it was a microscope that was trained on a little piece of what looked like wood. And it was right at the middle of a whole display. You had to wait in a queue to look. And when you looked through, you were looking at something. It was hard to make out what it was. It was, stone, it was the teeth imprints of a Stone Age child on a piece of amber within a bark of a pine tree. Now, from that, they had then got a huge exhibition about the amber trade, about how long pine trees lived, about how all those kids lived. Where is our story in our museums? It's totally absent. I, want, I possibly didn't make it clear enough, and you've answered it terrifically. It's, I was thinking of the arts in the broadest sense. Celtic connections, our big orchestras, music in the schools, all these things that seem to be getting chopped at the moment. How do we cope with that? Well, it's a difficult one, but actually I would go just back a wee bit here because I think there's an even bigger problem underlying it. I don't know about the schools here. Clearly, I'm a blow-in. But from schools with my stepchildren's, uh, from my stepchildren's area here in East Lothian, um, I've been to their school concerts and there's not a single Scottish song sung in them. They're all whatever you know the latest film is. And okay, I get that. When we were young, we probably did much the same. But actually, the amount of Scottish input there is is completely dwindling. And so I think there's a, there's a bit of a problem with cuts. That's true. But, I mean, I think in our days, I don't know if it was funded whatever we got. It's felt to me like it was very much people that had a passion that passed it on. And it looks like we're going to end up doing the same thing. It's a very good point because, actually, in the period that we've now got where we don't have a definite date for IndyRef 2 and we're kind of all standing waiting for the gun to be fired... There's plenty of things to do, and a lot of that, to, it strikes me, should be cultural. I mean, whether that's... I was uh, at an event that was restarting Bothy culture in Inverness, and this was... Excuse me, using a microphone, but this was no microphones. This was small gigs in old tin hall... You know, tin... Corrugated tin, wood-panelled interiors, lovely curried in wee places, where the audience might only be 40 or 50... And it's people from the local area who are standing up doing the entertainment. Well, you know, that's part of our culture. But Bothy culture died when, you know, Bob Dylan used, you know, plugged his guitar in. So there's, there's lots of things from that to actually doing summer schools is a thing I would love to do. The Irish do summer schools. There's six weeks in a summer where all the kids get a chance to go off to the Gael Tacht um, they learn about Joyce, about all their literary greats. They learn supposedly in Irish Gaelic, but mostly that, you know, that's a bit debatable. 
Um, and it gives the economy in these areas a huge boost, but it lets the kids learn something from passionate enthusiasts. And I'm not trying to diss any of the teachers who are here, but it's off-piste. It's not curricular-based. It's passion-based. You know, we could be doing that here as well, summer schools. But all of, you know, this needs something in the government. This needs some structure um, to get those big ideas off the ground. In the meantime, you've probably got in this room a university. You know, you've got a people's university of cultural knowledge. You will do. And you can turn it around that way if you want to. Well, there's that too. Although I think we're no bad, I think we're pretty good at writing songs and so on. Half the problem is the distribution to get it out beyond ourselves. I, th I think there's a position vacant in the Scottish Arts Council right now, and I think it needs a Scottish person to lead it. Well, that's that is, you know, this is a significant thing because these are issues you cannot raise without being called a philistine or racist. But it is the case that there has not been, as far as I understand, there has never been a Scottish. Um, director of the Edinburgh International Festival, Alistair Hetherington, I think, directed The Fringe possibly 40, 50 years ago, and that's it. Um, and if you point out that, you know, there, there is, in, in, in my experience, in culture and in the environment, there are a lot of people who come in from Firth of Scotland, and that's an interesting one to me. Um, in, in, in the environment, in land and so on, I have a feeling that sometimes Scotland feels to us like uh, the way I used to feel about the lounge we had in Belfast. I was in there probably about four times in my life. Every time, did, did you ever have a lounge like that that you couldn't go into? You know, it was too special for the likes of you. Um, and kind of when you went in, you just were very careful that you didn't put anything dirty anywhere or yourself or whatever, and you felt uneasy. What are we like? You know, we're tiptoeing around this place like we're in somebody else's lounge. And the thing is, that's inherited and learnt behaviour because it's been true. It's been true for centuries, and you don't switch those things off quickly. So I think Scots don't feel confident about being in charge of our own environment. The things that there are fewest numbers of Scots in are the things that are most important, but about which we feel most uncertain and that's because historically we've been squeezed out. We're not sure if we've got a culture. Of course we know we've got a culture that's worth going on about. But, you know, when you get to things like, where was the protest when it was Robert Burns, I'm trying to think, whatever it was, anniversary, 125th, 150th, not that long ago, there was not a thing on network BBC. Now, there is no question that Burns is a poet of international stature, I can remember being in the north of Norway and trying, on the 25th of January and trying to explain to my host why I was feeling a bit odd about it because I'd not really been out of the country on the 25th before and he'd not really heard of Robert Burns and couldn't understand it. As we were talking in the street of this little town called Chirkinus, which is 13 kilometres from the Russian border, right up in the north, a guy with a kind of, you know, the classic Russian big sort of fur hat came past, heard the words Robert Burns and stopped in the street and said, are you Scottish? And I said, yeah. He said, this is Burns Day. And I thought, see, there's my boy, you know. And he says, yes, my heart is in the Highlands, and I would go there now. My heart is in the Highlands. 
And I, t- I turned to the Norwegian guy and said, uh, see, you know, he's kind of like, well, Kent. And the, the Norwegian guy says to the Russian, he says, why on earth do you know anything about a Scot? And he says, he is not just a Scot, he is a liberation poet. Not a program on the BBC when it was a significant anniversary and we've got Shakespeare coming out of our oxters and we've got Dickens coming out of our oxters. Now, I do not grudge it because they were pretty good too. But the point is, if we were a Great Britain that meant anything, if we were a Britain whose culture was the product of the best of the parts, we would not have to keep supplementing it with international stellar talents who are ignored. And where were we when that happened? You know, I I wrote about it actually in Blossom, and I didn't protest. I was ground down by it. Nobody thinks the BBC will pay any attention. They're probably, they're absolutely right. But, you know, this is the problem for our culture. We have to keep reimagining its status. We have to keep trying to sort of explain why it rises in us. And all these things, we shouldn't have to keep explaining so much. We should be able to enjoy far more. Right, that might not have answered the question either, sorry. <laughs> like, you, like you, I admire Iceland and the Faroes. But there's another small island nation much nearer to us than either of those two. And that's the Isle of Man. It's not in the United Kingdom and not in the EU. Very high standard of living. The people are very happy there. I've got in-laws there and I've been there. Highly impressed. Yep, absolutely. I mean, they've got a slightly different model, I think, there. You wouldn't, don't know that they're trying so much to model themselves on a social democracy in the Isle of Man. But, you know, the point is when you've got your own government, you can decide what you want to do. So, yeah, it, they're very often ignored. And you're right, it's, a, it's an example that's slap bang in front of us. I suppose what will happen is that people will often look at something like the Isle of Man and just say that is too small an example upon which to base the arguments for a large nation like Scotland. But you get to a stage where we're too small to stand on our own feet, but we're too large to take any comfort from comparisons with perfectly functioning neighbours. So, yep. Well, we were actually attached to the Scandinavian landmass originally, and England was actually attached to another piece of earth entirely. So uh, we did, in fact, belong to a different continent. That's true. Right, we need to... And after this, we have to have women asking questions or I'm going to sit down. Right. And I'm, I'm, you better believe me, right? Come on, gals. Just got a quick one there. On the BBC. You've worked for the BBC. How do you feel that the BBC... Uh, treated us through the referendum and I'd also like to ask a supplementary question and that's about the 400,000 people that were born first of Scotland how do we convert them to being pro-independence I didn't catch the 400,000 people who are born first of Scotland, out with Scotland Right. Yeah. and how do we get them to support actually I'm saying yeah and I still don't get it the 400,000 people who are first of Scotland born, born first of Scotland out of, oh, you mean Scotland. right? Okay, so I don't uh, mean English. Yeah, I know. Uh-huh. I mean, I mean. People yeah, we're trying not to say incomers, right? But that's okay. Yeah, that's right. And and t- touching on the, the arts, Alistair Gray had a hell of a time when he yeah. complained about the number of non-Scots running the Scottish arts. Well, he did. The thing is, he did. Um, I, I think again, I can remember writing about this in Blossom, but he did use emotive words like colonizer, 
And I can't remember the other. There were two categories of people. One was a colonizer and one was something that was just as offensive. So actually, if you really are trying to communicate something, you have to struggle very hard, as you did there, and I didn't hear you properly, but you're trying not to use the word incomer. Well, good. Because, you know, we know that's just pushing buttons. If you want to go around annoying people, yeah, it's easy. You just bang them over the head with words that, you know, cause an instinctive defensive reaction, and then you're surprised at the upset you've caused. So I just... I'm sorry. Uh, his, you call him Mozart's words, they were his words. Why, why should he have to guard his words in his country? Because if it, this is just an awareness. We're all different, right? Now, my approach to everything... In, right? Do you want me, I'm trying to out, outline my answer to it here. Right. And it is that, like, my, my interest in life is to try to get as far as I can towards someone who disagrees with me, and that really relies upon not setting off any landmines between us. So, you know, of course, he's, he's entitled to say whatever he, is, he, he likes. That's absolutely true. All I'm saying is that if we were trying to get into some of that area... It would be easier to do it without raising immediate hackles if we could get just not describe people as colonizers. Because, you know, colonial colonizers, I mean, that's a quite a strong thing to say about English, whoa, about English people who've come here who have very often contributed in a big way to society. And if you disagree with that, you're looking at one. I was born in Wolverhampton. You, you, need to, you need to look more carefully at his distinctions. If you want, I can look it through in the book. But that was part of the difficulty, and this is my opinion, was that if you use language, it's, it's basic that, that will let people run to an emotional response, you lose the capacity to have the argument you want to have. Now, here we've gone about it again. I don't want to discuss ta- name tags or tactics I want to discuss the fact <clears throat> that Scottish people are not in charge of, of the cultural mainstays of Scotland. And we're not able to have a discussion about it. You know, if you looked, if you looked in Ireland, a friend had come back recently from the Hurley finals. It was Galway versus, I'm trying to remember. And the whole of Ireland was pulled up in that, very tied up in that match. And it was on everything. Now, that's a, it's a beautiful thing to realize that an indigenous sport um, captivates everybody's attention in a way that football doesn't in Ireland. But we're different. You know, that's something to aspire to, but we haven't got. I mean, we don't have. Shinty doesn't have the pool of Hurley in, in Ireland. But we have the, the, we have the right and we need to start getting in to be able to put more of our own culture up top. Um, for example, the um, trying to think, the fireworks display at the end of the Edinburgh Festival um, cost more than the entire budget for Celtic Connections. Now, the thing is, it was nice, wasn't it? You know, okay, it brings, it helps the economy of Edinburgh, yada, yada, yada. I mean, yeah, but actually, 
I think if a lot of people were able to choose, they would put more money into Celtic connections. But we can't even have that debate because it sounds Philistine. I have been called Philistine more times than you have sat scowling at the back, my friend. I mean, I actually uh, had a bit of a go at the portrait gallery for not having modern Scots in the portrait gallery. Sorry? Mm-hmm. Okay, I apologize for you. you. You are, from my perspective, it's hard to talk when you see somebody that looks so angry at the back. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but the point I was going on to make was that the portrait gallery, for example, in Edinburgh, um, actually had a policy, I think until 1982, that they couldn't buy a portrait of a living Scot. I mean, it's an extraordinary Victorian kind of conceit that the only people worth having on anything are people who are long dead. But the result is a gallery that has very little space for contemporary Scots. The thing that struck me most strongly about it was when um, George Wiley died. Now, I don't know if you all know George Wiley. He was fabulous, eccentric sculptor and many other things. He did the crane at uh, in, in Glasgow at Finiston and hung the straw boat from it. He did straw locomotives hanging over the edge of piers at Oban and Fort William. And actually, the bust of George Wiley was in the, was in the basement at the time. Like, you know, there's a rotation for all the Scots because they have such a limited space within the portrait gallery to be exhibited in. Personally speaking, I would take half of George III out and put all of us, all of our people in. Am I allowed to even say that? No, I'm not. You really need to bellow. I kind of hear you. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I mean, people... If people know about George, they absolutely love him. They love his cheek. I'm trying to remember the thing that he had at different ends of the M8. One was a candelabra, I think, at the Glasgow end, and then there was some wee sniffy thing at Edinburgh just to kind of have a bit of a get-it-up you to them, you know. And the thing is, that sort of, you know, humour is well understood, and that's kind of our culture, but it exists in the margins. I live near Dundee, and um, Michael Mara, who lived there, was a blooming genius of a guy. He was rated, I mean, many people said, this guy is a, is a, is a wordsmith on a, on a parallel with Burns. And he, he is, if you haven't listened to Michael Mara, bloomin' listen to him. When he died, I found myself having to explain who he was to people. And honestly, it's one of the most upsetting things. When you know somebody should be known by everyone, and you somehow find yourself the inadequate vessel to try and capture an entire life of brilliant, mad, barking, eccentric, insightful work. Why was he not on television? Because he was a bit odd. You know, odd's good, odd's fine. Why is Elaine C. Smith not on television on the BBC? She's apparently not got enough character to hold a series together. I think that answers a question I might have been asked about 100 years ago about the BBC. Um, just as a final thing on the BBC, uh, I, think, I think the thing for the BBC in the referendum was actually a, a very un- unfortunate die was already cast in the Iraq war, which was the time that I left. Because basically when Greg Dyke walked the plank and the BBC lost the battle with the British government over the dodgy dossier, you might remember, 
the BBC just pulled right back from anything that looked like confrontation with the establishment, the government, or the authorities ever again. And I know, because I was in there, I was just saying um, that, you know, you get to a stage where we were at war, we were in the Iraq war, and there were still producers that thought we should be discussing litter because we got more phone calls on it. Um, And basically, a dumbing down happened, a retreat from things that were difficult, and that set the template for the next big difficult thing that walked in, the referendum. It was utterly predictable that they wouldn't be able to handle that because they'd spent the previous decade um, pulling their horns in away from anything that was controversial and unable to think that they are innately reflecting the view of the establishment all the time. So it wasn't, it was a poor show. And the thing that I most object to is even not instances of bias. It's the sheer weariness of the whole thing. I mean, this was the most exciting time to be in Scotland, was it not? Right? Well, how was it? I met so many journalists who were like, oh, no, not another debate, not another. You know, it's, that's, that's the shameful thing, how how, what a kind of misfiring there was between their approach to it and our experience of it. Um, I'd like to say that um, we didn't get Castle Tower, but South Cal Community Development Company is still in existence and now looking at new assets to try and acquire for our community. So down, but certainly not out. Um, a question, I did some work a number of years ago where there was the Deserve Project, which was where Scotland uh, partnered on research projects with Norway, Sweden, Um, Finland etc a lot of work done a lot of money spent went nowhere but one of the things that certainly I learned in this bit of research I did was that you can't take policies really really good policies from Scandinavia and just plonk them in here because if you only have half the infrastructure or the system it won't work Um, how do you think we could actually get the kind of basic infrastructure and the thinking and the policies right so that we could actually import ideas and use them well. Yeah, you're very right. Um, we, it's, 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 it's probably an unpopular thing to say, but if you have grown up in Britain, as most of us have, and you haven't lived a long time abroad, you are British up here. You have a series of expectations um, which are of a top-down society in which the winner takes all, the devil takes the hindmost. It's competitive. It's pretty uncaring. It's kind of exciting if you like that sort of thing. Um, and that amounts to what we think we're working with. So for a lot of people, um, doing well to being a bit more humane in that system is as good as it gets. So basically, if we can do a couple of percent better at England at stuff, to be blunt, then a lot of people will think that's pretty good. So, for example, not in the last elections, local elections, but the previous one, the turnout in Scotland was 38% average. Uh, but the turnout in the England for their local elections was 30%. Resultum mundo. Now, this is, this is the way people think about achievement. And you'd have to say that's actually the way the Scottish government often thinks about it as well. To be fair, unless you've got control of more of the money and levers, it's kind of hard to make transformational change. That's what's needed. Um, some of the change, some of the differences that are the most pronounced 
in fact probably the most pronounced difference between the Nordics and us is the amount of power that's held at local level. Now, you know, I say this over again, people go, oh, like they were looking for something a bit sexier. That's it, folks. Because what that actually says is the people of these countries have a very high opinion of their own capacity. And what we have in Scotland as a result of a top-down hierarchical experience topped with feudal land ownership, which meant that the same guy for our grandparents' generation and beyond, the same guy was a feudal superior, a landowner, a landlord, an employer, and very often the convener of the local council as well, if you were the Duke of Buclue, Johnny. Um, that, that kind of experience is completely disempowering. And we are still working that through. It is not possible to flick a switch because much um, as, as I was ex expressing a belief that we can be the nations that are around us, we certainly need to be doing some work on the, the structures that keep us hesitant. And unless we get a better idea of our own capacity, I don't know how people will come to, to think that if they are not allowed to run significant things in their own community, how will they be able to run their own country? Um, I see a pretty strong link between those things. And the places, the Catalans, I actually was talking about this recently, and a guy in the audience sent me a long thing about the nature of local democracy in Catalonia, which again has got tiny councils. I know some of you have heard me talk about this before, but seriously, just to get this one statistic, the, the average population of a local council in Scotland is currently 170,000 people. And as usual, nobody in the audience is bad an eyelid because how would you know? You don't go on holiday and say to folk, what's your local government set up like? You know, so we don't know if that's big or small. It's humongous. The average size in the EU nations of a council doing the same is 7,000 people. If we look at Germany, let's forget the Nordics for a minute, but if you look at Germany, which has got to be the most successful economic state probably in Europe, the average size of its councils, again, 7,000 people. The average physical size in, in, in Germany, 15 square kilometers. The average size in Scotland, 950 square kilometers. You're having a laugh. Now, the reason that this all matters is that this is a feudal structure. Feudalism didn't just apply to land ownership. It applies the template, the template of not trusting the little people with control and ownership is a virus that has riddled its way through every aspect of governance in Scotland. We are worse than England, I'm afraid. We have community councils. Now I know there'll be community councillors in here. God love you that you put your effort into something whose average budget is £400 a year that has to be spent on stationery. You know, this is pitiful, and I'm sorry, but what it speaks of is a chronic lack of trust of the people. And whilst that's all going on, it's really difficult to say that we don't have the average normal experience of running things but actually we'll be all right in the night when we become independent. I think there's a huge problem in there myself. 
Hi. And you're talking about local level is where it's got to come from. I think this legislation is actually a very positive. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I mean, you may know I've spent a lot of time supporting community initiatives. I was a trustee of the Isle of Egg Trust for eight years up to the buyout. So I'm a great believer in people trying to get the ahead of things and getting control of them. But here's the thing. In right-sized democracies, there are no community buyouts. Think about it. You know, if you have a decent system, why does a community need to buy its way out of it? There is not a single community land buyout in Norway because they've got their land laws right. And so I'm afraid that the thing that's happening in Scotland is that we have, for some reason, a chronic fear of changing systems. So, you know, what will happen is you'll get all sorts of workarounds, and that's what the Community Empowerment Bill is, is about. It's not saying, let's look at these oversized councils, which, by the way, COSLA, the council's representative body, has said are far too big. Like, that's turkeys not just voting for Christmas, but jumping in the tin and chucking oil over themselves. They want at least 100. If we had the European average, we'd have 517 councils, and you'd be sitting in the middle of one of them. So, you know, it's great the community thinks what I hope it's doing is giving people a taste of power um, and then beginning to ask why systems don't make it easy for everyone to have it. Like, let's talk about egg for a minute, the People's Republic. Um, what the egg acts did, stunningly clever thing, um, they have, have given land free to young people to build housing in a shared equity system. What that means is kids build the uh, housing, usually with help from other people. If they ever go on to sell their houses, at that point they pay the full cost of the land back to the Isle of Egg Trust, who then give the money to somebody else. And the result of that is that young ones have got a two-bedroomed house for £40,000, made of local timber. Because the other thing is there was always a terrible fear that local timber wasn't strong enough you get much denser wood the higher north you get because it takes longer to grow. So what have the guys done? They've just doubled the size of the beams. This is revolutionary in its small way. That's why egg is a massive success story. Why is this not happening all over Scotland? Why is there not land being taken over and given for free to people to build two-bedroomed houses for £40,000? We would transform our health our idea of what's possible, our experience of running things. So sure, Egg being a community buyout has been an extraordinary thing. They've also got a kind of award-winning off-grid electricity system, Eggtricity, which is a combined hydro, solar, and what's the other one? Wind. How could I forget wind on Egg? Um, <laughs> You know, they've got that combined system, which means that they finally were able to switch off the diesel generators they'd been dependent on for donkey's years. You know, so when people's ingenuity is released, by gum they start making brilliant local solutions, but it's one here, one there. You have to fight for the cash. You have to compete with your neighbors. You have to get burnt out. You've got no structure behind it. Sometimes it's not quite democratic. You know, all these things are inherent in the way that we're approaching change at the moment. It's piecemeal. It doesn't need to be. 
I would like the Scottish Government to be giving tenant farmers in Scotland the right to buy, the same as the Irish had in 1903, and giving them the long payback period to do it. The Irish farmers had that right in 1903, and they were given a 60-year repayment period. Of course, some of them actually didn't end up being in Britain for long enough to pay back very much at all. But it transformed Ireland. It's why you go around Ireland and you see signs saying, beware people walking. Who's walking here between settlements? They're too far apart. There's nothing to walk to. Leslie, I think we better kind of start to wind this up. Um, we're, getting, we're supposed to be closing at 9.30. Sure. Well, do you want to do it then? Well, um, I, I don't know. I think there's another question across the other side. So. You're, a, you're a perverse old uh, master of ceremonies, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Is this the last question then? This last has been trying to ask a question. Have you know? Right, you've gone quiet again. Okay, right, right, right. I just wanted to know what the hell we can do about the BBC. There was nothing to do with that. I don't know what you can do about the BBC. Well, you know, but the thing is, I, I wasted 18 months of my life trying to set up a public service radio alternative to Radio Scotland, and the Scottish Government didn't put any money into it. So, you know, there's people trying to come up with I'm I'm fed up doing that now. But somebody younger will have the energy and it'll work at some point. But the Scottish Government needs to put money behind alternatives. And they're, they're at the moment, they're worried about offending the majority. Majority? Is it? Who knows anymore? I think probably a minority of people um, who think the BBC is the voice of, of reason. I think the BBC knows how much we despise it. I don't know no, they don't. I mean, <clears throat> Elaine C. Smith, who's the convener of the Scottish Independence Convention, and myself actually had a four-hour meeting with the new controller of BBC Scotland, Donalda McKinnon, who's actually a very nice woman, and uh, we went through everything. And she listened. Now, you know, not seeing massive changes yet. You may notice on a lot of programmes there are, is now an independence person, or actually two sometimes. I mean, that's a heady experience. But uh, it's not gone very far. The only thing you could say is uh, that idea of having a meeting in the previous controller would never have happened. So she recognises a problem. You know, I know I don't think they've got an idea. But the thing is, I'm, I, do, you know, do you not feel this yourself? I am not a negative person myself. I just like to see things being created. So I don't want to waste another minute arguing with somebody who doesn't want to listen to me. I just want to find a way to display... The extraordinary stories, people, bloody, bloody, blah, that we've got loads of. And we need to get the, the resources behind that to be able to put a vibrant alternative out. Now, and it could be radio. You say, okay, this is me. Um, TV takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of bandwidth. Radio is a much simpler thing to get up and running. Bauer Media run a lot of the commercial stations in Scotland uh, this fellow, Ian Ritchie, who can count, and me, went into Barrow Media about six years ago and tried to buy their medium wave frequencies off them because they're only retransmitting the FM music on medium wave and it's rubbish quality. Um, so we said, well, if we could buy the medium wave thing, we'd have an instant network of speech. And they wouldn't sell it. 
<laughs> they said, this company has a policy of never selling assets. Now, the thing is, that was another, that was the 18 months. And I thought, do you know something? I'm just knackered now. There's no support from the Scottish government. We've tried everything. But somebody with more energy and a better cash, they're still there. They're still replaying their FM on medium wave. It still sounds rubbish. I merely say. Leslie, I should independence this weekend. How do you see that going? It's going to be a disaster, actually. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know enough about it, but it's like a, a head-on collision. It's like a Spanish bullfight in the meeting. It's, it's, it's shocking. Um, I see that the latest thing is that um, the, the Madrid government has forced Google to take down links about it. I mean, this is just unbelievable. Um, I think that nine million of the voting papers have been confiscated which actually means at a practical level, I don't think they can actually now have a valid election. But on the other hand, there's no way people are not going to, are going to sit back and sit at home on that. So there's a, there's a real impasse, and I don't know how that works its way out. Th- these guys, we were talking earlier, um, the, the idea that, that these guys, who are able to mass a demonstration that had people holding hands from Barcelona to the Pyrenees, can be put in a box. It's like it's not going to happen. And I think it's, it's throwing all sorts of challenges up for Britain because a lot of people are looking at that and beginning to think that's, that is, there's a pattern of heavy-handedness here of states that are actually also breaching EU regulations. I mean, some of the regulations that are applied to new countries wanting to join the EU are respect for self-determination of nations which Spain is now contravening blatantly and nobody is picking them up on it. So I I don't know. It looks like it could get very messy this weekend. And I wonder what the Scottish government's position will be because they were slow to get involved at all, recognising that the Spaniards, if riled, could just block our EU membership or indeed EFTA membership if they wanted. But I think this weekend will force everybody to stand up and be counted. One from John. There. Right, John. What is it? <laughs> no, you're all right. Go on. I don't have a microphone, so I will just speak. I've got a microphone, you beauty. Uh, uh, what most people are worried about at the moment, and I mean big time worried, is the Third World War. And we Scots have the right to get rid of bloody trident if we choose. And all we need to do is bloody vote yes. And it's done. And it's done. Right, yep. Okay, I, I agree with you. That's, that's very true. Well, well said. Well said, John. Yep. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of a fascinating night. Not only do I want to move a vote of thanks to Leslie for coming here and speaking to us, I want to move a vote of thanks for her colossal injection of enthusiasm into us all. We know what's in front of us now. Thank you very much.